It's really great to be here with you guys. I'm just going to tell you two stories to start with from kind of our context in mission amongst the unreached. And they're both prison stories. So they're both stories about people that I know who have gone somewhere to preach the gospel for Jesus and have been put in prison. And they're both from this year, okay? And they're two very different stories. And the first one is from Turkey, where we've been living. And there's a guy called Andrew Brunson, who's an American pastor. I know him. I've drunk coffee with him. Maybe it's popped up on your newsfeed. I don't know. But uh, two years ago, he was imprisoned in Turkey, uh, falsely accused of being a spy and put in prison. And he's had a really brutal, really difficult time for two years. And he's, he's been moved to being under house arrest now, but he's still uh, not being cleared and he still can't leave the country. And during this time, his wife, Noreen, has been an extraordinary hero. So uh, kind of fighting uh, for justice, talking to lawyers, helping out with the family, helping lead the church, which is still there. And, and, and they've had an extraordinarily difficult two years. There was a time when he was in a cell with a whole load of ISIS guys. who were, So he's there because he's a Christian, and they're there because they're ISIS extremists. And the whole time, for 24-7, these guys were trying to memorize the Quran. So they were uh, night and day reciting the Quran. And so people were praying for him to have the opportunity to share the gospel. But actually, he's not even had the opportunity to, to think and breathe. It's been He spent 50 days in solitary. So this is a friend of mine, and it's someone who's in prison, and this is ongoing after two years, okay? The other story comes from Mumbai in India, and, uh, you know, this church is part of a a big family of churches around the world called New Frontiers, and um, this comes from one of our New Frontiers churches in Mumbai in India, and one of the leaders there earlier this year was falsely accused because he was preaching the gospel, and he was put in prison. Uh, He was in prison for 17 days, And on the 17th night, he had a dream. And in his dream, Jesus appeared to him and said to him, tomorrow you're going to be released. So he got up the next morning, he had a shave, he had a shower, he put clean clothes on because he thought, today I'm going to be released, I can go see my family. And all the other prisoners said to him, what are you doing? Why are you shaving and showering? And he said, oh, Jesus told me I'm going to be, they were like, oh, you're crazy, crazy guy. And so at 11 o'clock in the morning, his name gets called on the tannoy. Please come here. You're going to be released. And he's like, ah, I told you so. And um, it was a massive testimony to many of the people in the prison that Jesus had spoken to him and miraculously released him. And so you've got two very different stories. One, it's been two years. He's still suffering. It's been incredible. It's ongoing. And you just think, where's the miracle for Andrew? And then for this other brother in India, it was 18 days and then a kind of miraculous dream and a miraculous release from prison. And, and so the one situation requires patience, perseverance, trust in God. He's got a plan for my life. There's something. And the other is a real faith thing. There's kind of a miracle and God's done something and it's like, boom. And the verse we're going to look at this evening actually tells us that as Christians, we need both patience and faith. There are some situations where we need patience, and there are some situations where we need faith. And so we're going to look at a verse from the book of Hebrews that talks about both of these things. Um, and maybe you're in a, I doubt there's anyone here this evening who's in a literal prison, but maybe you're in a metaphorical prison. Maybe you're in a situation that you can't get out of. Maybe uh, you're, you feel really trapped in something. And so this word tonight is, We need faith to give us that kind of miraculous breakthrough moment. 
But also we need patience and endurance in case that miraculous breakthrough moment doesn't come. Okay, so we're going to read two verses from the book of Hebrews together. And then we're going to look at the life of a a hero because that's been the series that you guys have been going through. A guy called uh, Doniram Judson. Or it might be, Joel says he's called Adoniram Judson. So we're just going to call him Judson uh, because I don't know how to pronounce his name. But we're going to look at his story. Uh, But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at two verses from Hebrews, and then we're going to look at the story of this guy together. Is that okay? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this church. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your power is here right now. Come, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Touch us, we pray. Let your goodness and your grace fall upon each person here. Please change our lives. We sit under your word and we want it to transform us and shape us. Make us different. Make us better. Make us holy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, two verses from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 and verse 12. And um, the Hebrews, from what we understand, they, they... for them to believe and follow Jesus was a really difficult decision in their context. They would be persecuted, they'd, they'd have a difficult time, uh, and, and they'd started really well and really passionately, but then with time, that passion has grown a bit cold, and a lot of people have started backing off. And so the guy writes the letter of Hebrews to kind of fire them up, to stir them up again, okay? And so that's the context of these two verses. So Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so this is about faith and patience. And, and it says here, we, we desire each one of you. And this word today is for each one of you. I'm going to talk about mission to the unreached. At the end, I'm going to give an opportunity for people to respond if they think, actually, maybe God is calling me to share the gospel of Jesus with difficult groups of people. I'm going to give an opportunity for those kind of people. And so you might think, hey, that's not me. But actually, it says, I want each one of you to have the same earnestness, the same zeal. So this is a word for every single person here. Have a passion for Jesus. Burn with desire and passion and love for him. And he says, so that you may not be sluggish. Now, what does that mean? Like a slug. Don't be like a slug. What does that word mean? Well, it, it, it actually means like disillusioned or distracted or bored, kind of sleepwalking through life. Sluggish. I don't really care. I'm too cool for school. You know, for me, it's kind of like I don't go to the gym very often. Uh, Maybe you can tell, but sometimes we had nice Mexican food. What can I say? Uh, Sometimes uh, when I go to the gym occasionally, I'm on the, what you call it, running machine. I don't even know what the things are called. (laughs) The running machine thing. And what happens is I don't get tired, but I just get bored. I just think, why am I doing this? I get distracted. I think, what's the value? What's the virtue of this? Why, why tire myself for this? And that's what this word means. It's like, I, I could be passionate for Jesus and burning for the kingdom, but actually, eh, what's the big deal? You know, life distracts me. So many other things happen. That's what this word means. And um, then it says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And when Joel started this series a few weeks back, he spoke from Hebrews 13, 7. 
where it says, remember your leaders and imitate their faith. And so Joel said, we're given in history like a library of lives, different famous people to look at, to look at their story. Why? So that we'll imitate their faith. And this verse says not just their faith, but their faith and patience. Okay, and so as Christians, we need faith and patience. You know what faith is, trusting Jesus, knowing that he's got it and that he could do it now. Patience, this word here, uh, the Greek word is makrothymia. And so makro means long and thymos is a soul or your spirit. And it's the place where you feel things. It's the pace of passion. It's the place of feeling. And so when it says long-spirited, It's saying you can feel things deeply and carry that passion for a long time. It's like long-suffering, forbearance, carrying pain for a long time, having a deep emotional resilience. That's what this kind of patience word means, okay? Now, we all need faith and patience to follow Jesus. Faith, some of us are faith people. You might say, there, that's me. If there's an obstacle, zap it. If there's a mountain, toddle through it. If there's a sickness, heal it. Faith is like a today word. It happens today. So uh, it says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Uh, When David's going to fight Goliath, he says, today, I'm going to cut off your head. Yeah, today is a faith word. And maybe that's you. And that's how you see the world. And that's, that's how you pray. That's a good thing. Okay? Because we're charismatic... We're faith people. We think, yeah, I believe God could heal me. I believe God will heal me. I believe God will heal me today. I believe God could speak right now and change my whole life. You believe that? Through this sermon today, some of you, God is going to speak to you and change the trajectory of your whole life. That's a faith thing. Some of us are patience people. Patience, your word is tomorrow. And it's like, it might not happen today, but it will happen tomorrow. Okay, I was born, I grew up in Cyprus. In Cyprus, the most popular word is tomorrow. Yeah, will you do this? Yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. (laughs) When does this shop open? Ah, tomorrow. (laughs) It's clever because when tomorrow comes, you can ask and they'll say, ah, tomorrow. And um, Cypriot people, they're very patient people, but it frustrates some other people. (laughs) And if if faith is is a charismatic virtue, then patience is a reformed virtue. It's some, it, trusting the sovereignty of God. God has a plan. He has the best for me. He has a purpose. It might not happen now, but I trust him that it will happen. Okay? And so the danger for faith people is an overrealized sense of responsibility. I've got to have faith. I've got to do this. There's a mountain and I've got to tunnel through it. And, and, and kind of, what God could want you to take the long road around the edge of the mountain. The danger for patience, people, is fatalism. I'm thinking, well, God's going to do it. He's got a great plan. So why do I need to? You know, at the moment, I have the opportunity of going around churches in the UK, telling stories of what God's doing in other countries and, and many Muslims coming to faith through dreams and visions and miracles. And some people go, oh, wow, God is working amongst Muslims. So I want to get involved. How do I get involved? Other people say, oh, wow, God is working amongst Muslims, so then I don't need to. And so the danger sometimes is we trust that God has a great plan. You know, when William Carey, uh, the missionary from England who wanted to go to India, he says to his pastor, pastor, I really feel called to go to India to save people. And his pastor says to him, sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without your help. And sometimes there's a danger for us of that kind of thinking. 
And so according to this verse, we need both. Yeah? If you're a faith person, you need to add to that patience, resilience, long-suffering. If you're a patience person, you need to add to that faith and expectation that God could do it today. An example from the book of Daniel, where the three guys are going to get thrown in the fiery furnace. And they say to the king, if this be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. So God is able to save us. He will save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to you and we'll endure the fiery furnace. An example, uh, some of you may have heard of PJ Smythe, who's a leader as part of our movement as well. This big family of churches, New Frontiers. And um, PJ is a pastor in a church, but he got uh, a very aggressive cancer. And struggling to kind of teach the gospel when you're sick. And he said this, because I'm a good charismatic, I believe this sickness is from the devil and I'm expecting total healing and a long life. Because I'm reformed, I thank God for his loving sovereignty that he won't test me beyond what I can bear, that he will work it out for my good and for his glory. I'm 100% in faith for healing And 100% trusting that if God in his perfect wisdom chooses not to heal me, that his ways are perfect. So faith and patience. Does that make sense? Are you a faith person or a patience person? What do you need God to add to you? And we're going to look at the story of this guy, Judson, Adoniram, Adoniram Judson, uh, because... I think his life embodies both of these things, faith and patience. And I think if you want to talk about mission and the cost of reaching people and what kind of people it takes, then I think this guy is a great example for us. So we're going to look at a little bit of his story together. And I trust that just by hearing his story, like we've been doing this whole series, that God will speak to people and impact their lives because it's an impressive story of God taking a normal guy. He, He was the first overseas missionary from America. So this story takes place 200 years ago. And um, he was the first person from the U.S. who went overseas as a missionary. And this is the guy. And um, when he was 22 years old, so just before he left the U.S. to go and serve God in Burma, which is today called Myanmar um, in Southeast Asia, just before he leaves the U.S., He's just, he's focused, I'm going on mission. He meets this girl called Anne or Nancy. And um, the day he meets her, he falls in love with her. It's like love at first sight. And now he's distracted. He's like, oh, it's going on mission and I've met this girl. What do I do? And um, after knowing her for one month, he writes a letter to her father asking for permission to marry her, okay? And he essentially says to her father, I'm going on mission. It's going to be really dangerous. We're probably all going to die can I have your daughter? I've got a daughter. I can imagine getting a letter like that. And um, I'd find my shotgun, you know. And so this is the letter. I'm going to read it to you. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. 
whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That's the letter. The father says, she's a big girl, let her make up her own mind. So I thought it was quite wise. And she says, yeah, I'm up for an adventure. God's in this. Why not? So they get married and off they go. Uh, Our story wasn't quite as extreme as that. But for me, uh, I'd come to faith and I got my heart set on going to the Middle East on mission. And then I met Jess. I actually met her when we were coming here 17, 18 years ago to the worship school that you guys used to run here. And it was one Saturday a month for a year. And we started the year just car sharing and we ended the year married. So that's thanks to you guys. Um, And I took her on honeymoon to Afghanistan, which her parents were really not pleased about. (laughs) We were actually, we were there on 9-11 when September 11th happened in 2001. And uh, we had to uh, disguise ourselves as local people and escape uh, through another route. Because if they'd found us looking like Americans, we might have had difficulty. But anyway, that's that's another story. Um, (laughs) So what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, Judson's life in kind of four decades. So his, his ministry in Burma in kind of 10-year chunks, and there's four of them. That's how we're going to go, okay? So the first one is uh, they arrive in Burma in 1813, and they're 24 years old, Adoniram and Nancy. And if there was a heading for this first decade, it would be intentionality, okay? So having a plan and following through. And so they get on the ship, they depart for Burma. They're the first overseas missionaries from America, and they are the first foreign missionaries ever to go and preach the gospel in this nation of Burma. The first Christians ever to go preach the gospel there. Okay? Um, they land in India on the way, and they meet the famous missionary, William Carey, the English guy. And he says to them, no, 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 don't go to Burma. It's too dark, it's too lost, it's too unreached and violent, it's dangerous for you guys. Stay somewhere where it's going to be a bit easier to do mission. And they were like, no, we feel God's called us here. You know, today, people will still say that. Ah, you want a church plant? Go somewhere where you can actually plant a church and reach some people. Why go somewhere where people hate Christians? And you think, well, someone's got to go there. Someone's got to preach the gospel to people, even if they don't want to hear it. And so that's what fuels these guys. Uh, They have their first child on the ship. It's a long journey. And um, they have a child on the ship, and the child dies on the ship. It's not a great start to an adventure. Uh, When they arrive in Burma, they have their second child, Roger. And he very soon dies and is buried in Burma. They spend their their first six years studying the language. So trying to understand the language, trying to get to know people, seeing how people think, uh, preaching the gospel to people with no success, translating the gospel of Matthew. Six years. Can you imagine? You're writing your prayer letters home. What's going on? Well, we learned another verb. People are like, how many people have you been baptized? No one. Uh, at the six-year mark, they baptized their first convert. 
uh, the first believer in that nation, a guy called Man Nao, after six years. Over the next three years, they baptize 18 converts. So they're at the nine-year mark, and they've got now a small church, a handful of believers. So precious. Yeah. So a couple of comments on that decade. Uh, mission among the unreached today is still actually about slowness, inefficiency, uh, intentionality, having a plan. When we send teams places, uh, we, we send people together to go and just spend two years studying language. We're currently preparing to send our next team to Beirut in Lebanon. Uh, they will go next year. They will spend, they'll do 3,000 hours Arabic over two or three years, everyone on the team, before they plant a church, before they meet. After they've spent time trying to understand the language, then they can start preaching the gospel, and only later will people come to faith. That's okay. That's, that's, that's what we need to do. There's a faith thing, but there's a patience thing. Yeah, And um, even Jesus, when he came to the world on mission, he spent 30 years living amongst people, working as a carpenter, trying to understand people. 30 years listening, three years speaking. I'd argue that the 30 years listening made Jesus' three years speaking very effective. But you can't just turn up and go, hey, I know all the answers. People are going to go, hang on, we didn't even ask you a question yet. And the Bible says we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And often as Christians, we just start talking at people. Whereas actually, I think if we take time to listen to people's questions and concerns, then we can better answer those questions with the gospel. And so taking time, being intentional, and that's what we learned from their first 10 years. Okay. The next decade... If there was a heading for this next decade, it would be pain. So they moved to the capital city called Arva to go and seek patronage from the king. They want permission from the king to, to be able to preach the gospel all over the nation. And actually, the king says no. And worse than that, Judson and the other five foreigners in the country are all imprisoned. So they're all put in prison as spies. And... Um, it's a really brutal time for them. They spend 18 months in a prison called the Death Prison, which is not a good name for a prison. And um, during that time, they're tortured very badly. Often what would happen would be that the soles of their feet would be beaten, and then at night, their feet would be lifted up in shackles. So they'd sleep on the floor with their feet up, and all the mosquitoes would come on their bloody feet. And all night, they'd just feast on their feet. And so it's horrendous torture. Uh, as, and many other things as well. Many people died in the prison. During this time, Nancy is pregnant. She's not arrested, and she's a complete hero. So she is running around, trying to arrange lawyers, trying to pay. A little like Noreen earlier that I was talking about in Turkey. A very heroic woman, does some extraordinary things in terms of arranging things for his comfort and trying to get food for them in the prison and all this kind of stuff. This goes on for 18 months. She's pregnant. During this time, she has the baby uh, there's a great story that happens while they're in prison during that time. Judson has been working on the translation of the New Testament into the local language, Burmese. And it's, you know, he's not got a, a USB drive to store it on or anything. He's got this one manuscript. And they hide it in a pillow. And when, when the guys come to ransack the house because they're in prison and take anything good, they just see this, ah, oh, it's a useless pillow, and they throw it out. And one of the Burmese disciples comes and he gets hold of it and thinks, oh, it's Judson's pillow. I'm going to look after it for him. Not knowing that the Bible's hidden inside. And actually, in this way, the New Testament translation got preserved in a wonderful kind of miraculous way. 
After 18 months, finally Judson gets released from prison. Nancy's body is so exhausted and so broken from all the work that she's done while he's been in prison that a few months after Judson is released, she dies. And she leaves this baby, Maria, for Judson to look after. After a few more months, Maria dies. So Judson's now lost three children and a wife and seen them buried in Burma. He falls into a deep depression. So for several years, he goes into a really dark place. He's suicidal. He often thinks, maybe I should just kill myself. This doesn't make any sense. He writes during that time, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I can't find him. And he, he builds himself a little hut in the jungle and just goes and lives there. And doesn't want to talk to anyone, doesn't want to do anything. And he's there for a few years. And the locals think he's going to get eaten by tigers. He's gone to live in the jungle. And when he doesn't die, the locals see this as some great miracle of God preserving this saint. And finally, in the year 1830, he begins to climb out of depression. So that's a decade. Just a couple of comments. Uh, One comment on... Depression, mental illness, suicidal thoughts. These are really common, okay? And many of the great heroes, I know you've heard about Spurgeon from Toby. He suffered with depression. Many of the great heroes of our faith have been through dark times. Everyone goes through dark times. In the Bible, guys like Elijah prayed, God, take my life. The apostle Paul said, I've despaired of life. Everybody goes through dark times. If you are... If your prison is dark thoughts, self-harm, depression, wanting to take your own life, I want you to know there's no shame in that. It's really important. Okay? And what you need to do is later when we have a time of prayer, talk to someone on the prayer team. Talk that what you need to do is just share it with someone. No one's going to judge you. No one's going to think you're a terrible person. Everyone goes through dark times. Jesus loves you. And there is a way out, even if you can't see it now. Amen? The other comment just on this kind of season of his life is about family. And um, people could say, man, what kind of a father and a husband is he? His wife died, his kids died. Surely he should give up and come back. And too often for English people, one of the challenges is that we think our children are more important than Jesus. And so for us, we moved to Turkey with four kids under the age of six. Two of my boys have turned out to be autistic and have had extreme difficulties. Uh, My wife, Jess, has spent several years extremely ill, and we've been in fear of her life. A couple of years ago, we decided to jump back to the UK for a short time for a break. And um, when we did that... Uh, A pastor who I really respect, someone who I really love, said to me, Ah, McCulloch, it's so good to see you finally putting your family first. And I think, I'm not sure we believe that. I'm not sure we believe that. Our kids are important. They're a gift from God, but God's promised to look after them. But we don't put our family before the call of Jesus. We don't do that. 
And for people here who are considering maybe a difficult decision, but you're thinking, hey, what about my kids? What about my family? Jesus loves your kids. He gave them to you. He'll look after them. He loves your family. But you have to seek first the kingdom of God, and these other things will be added to you as well. Don't make your children an idol. Okay, the next decade. So we're looking now at um, Judson, age 42 to 56. And um, if there was a heading for this decade, it would actually be fruitfulness. So finally, in this year, 1831, Judson has climbed out of this dark depression. And they write that year in their letters that there's an extraordinary move of God that begins to happen in the nation. They've been in Burma 18 years. And now, they write, now there is a spirit of inquiry in all the land. That year, they baptized 373 people. That year. They distributed 10,000 gospel tracts only to those that were asking for them. And so suddenly, it's gone boom. And it's not by chance that it's after these really dark, hard, painful years that you get this awakening in the spirit. You know, Jesus said, if a seed doesn't fall into the ground and die, it only remains one seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. There's something about being buried in pain that actually produces extraordinary fruitfulness. You have to believe that. And that's what we see in this story and in so many other stories of our faith. And so there's an extraordinary work. Many other missionaries are now coming to join them because people like joining something that's fruitful. They don't like joining something that's hard. Um, And so now many other people are coming and beginning to work. There's a great couple called the Boardmans who are in the south of Burma, reaching the Karen people in the jungle and seeing an extraordinary work. But Mr. Boardman dies. And everyone thinks the wife, Sarah Boardman, is going to go back to America. But she says, no, I'm going to carry on. So she's like this single uh, woman in Victorian clothes, if you can imagine it, riding through the jungle and preaching the gospel to kind of these savage local guys. It's an extraordinary kind of picture. And Johnson hears about this and he says, ah, that's my kind of lady. And my wife has sadly passed away and I've grieved her. So he says to Sarah, will you marry me? And so they get married. And um, Sarah has eight children of which six survive. They've learned that the only way that children will survive in Burma is if they send them back to America when they're really young. So when the kids are really young, two, three years old, they put them on ships, they send them back to the States. And in this way, they could survive. Big cost, eh? At this point, many of the local guys that have got saved are now kind of pastoring the little local churches and doing the evangelizing. And Judson says, I'm the only person in the world who can work on the translation of the whole Bible into Burmese. That's what I'm going to do. So it's a very strategic choice. For years, he locks himself away and he says, I'm going to work on the translation of the Bible into Burmese language. And he does that for years and years and years. After a chunk of time, Sarah is taken really ill, and they say, well, the only way to save her is to get on a ship and go back to the States for a while. Judson had vowed he would never go back to the States. He's been away 33 years now. But he says, okay, just to save her life, I'll do it. And um, so they get on the ship, and they're journeying back to America. But on the journey there, Sarah dies, and he loses her. And so Judson turns up in the States on his own, thinks I can see my family. But his parents have all passed away. It's been 33 years. He doesn't really know anyone there. And he thinks, when can I return to Burma? So that's the end of the third decade. Okay, and now we're coming to the final 
uh, the fourth and final decade. And if there was a title for this, it would be kind of legacy. Uh, while he's in the States, Judson meets a famous female author called Emily, who's in New York and is a really popular writer of books and novels, and um, falls in love with her and says, I'm going back to Burma. How about it? How about leaving your career, leaving everyone you know, and coming with me? And she says, yeah, why not? I'm up for an adventure. Uh, and all her friends tell her, she's, you've got a successful career. You're making a name for yourself. She's like, I'm going to leave all of that. I feel Jesus has called me to do this. And so they get on the ship and they go to Burma together. And um, they have four fruitful, happy years together. And um, he finishes during this time his English Burmese Dictionary, which is a huge piece of work and is the foundation of the English Burmese Dictionary today, uh, written 160 years ago, extraordinary. And um, they have a daughter called Emily. And then Judson gets ill, uh, really ill. And he's ill for a whole year and in excruciating pain, and he's fighting for life because he's a fire. And at the end, they say, we need to put you on a ship to try and get a change of scenery. So they put him on a ship, uh, and he leaves, he leaves his wife, Emily, and his daughter in Burma, and he gets on the ship and goes off, and he dies at sea, and he's buried at sea. And his last words were, how few there are who die so hard. And she only finds out that he's dead when she gets a letter six months later. Just to kind of review the, the legacy, the impact of this guy's life, um, he was the first overseas missionary from the US. He was the first foreign missionary to enter Burma. He was the first person to translate the Bible into Burmese, and he's the first person to write an Anglo-Burmese dictionary. He outlived two wives and seven children, and eventually died aged 61, having given 36 years to Burma at a time when most missionaries lasted five years and then died. What used to happen was, because there was no penicillin, you go, you get, there's new diseases in new countries and people couldn't survive them. What used to happen? People put their coffin on the ship and use it like a suitcase, pack all their belongings in the coffin because they think I'm never coming back and I'm going to need a nice American-made coffin when I die. So that's what people used to do. They'd take their coffin with them. Um, and the nation of Burma today, Myanmar, um, so 160 years later, uh, it's a nation of 50 million people, and there's probably four or five million Christians there now. That's eight, ten percent. And that's traceable to this guy who was the first one to go and preach. It's an extraordinary legacy. Uh, Judson was a Baptist, so the churches that he started were Baptist. Today, the Baptist believers are about two million. So it's, it's the biggest kind of Christian community in Burma. And all of that is traceable to this guy and the movement he started and the work they did. Extraordinary, yeah? So great cost, but great fruitfulness and great legacy. So what we've done is we looked at faith and patience uh, from the book of Hebrews and said we need both of these things. Then we've looked at the story of Adoniram Judson and looked at how God used him and how painful it was, but how fruitful it was. Okay, now what about us? And um, normally in your kind of classic missionary appeal type thing, uh, people would take something like Isaiah chapter 6, where God is in heaven and he's thinking to himself, who shall we send? 
who will go for us? There's still unreached places today. There are people who've never heard about Jesus. There are people who don't have the Bible in their language. These kind of countries, places that hate Jesus, who don't want to hear about him, there's still plenty of those places today. Okay? So God is thinking to himself in Isaiah 6, who shall we send? And then Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And um, normally we leave it there, but if you read the rest of Isaiah 6, then actually it gets quite dark and God says, okay, you can go and people are going to listen, but they're not going to believe you. They're going to reject you. They're going to hate you. They're going to they're be mean to you. They're not going to listen to your words. And actually that is Isaiah's story. You don't normally hear that in the kind of missionary appeals. Who's going to go? It's going to be really hard. But then what I found is if you're honest with people about how hard it's going to be, that people can sign up for something with full integrity. What we find in our church in Turkey is that every person who comes to faith from a Muslim background, every person who chooses to get baptized and say, I'm following Jesus, does so because they're counting the cost. They're aware that their father will probably go to the lawyers and get them legally disinherited. That happens. They're aware that most of their friends and community will push them away. And so the, the, it's not just embarrassment, but it's a, it's a deep cost that people are counting. And yet people are coming to faith by their hundreds and by their thousands from Muslim backgrounds. So there's something about counting a cost that is honest. There's integrity to it. And that's true for us as well. When you chose to follow Jesus, when you got baptized, you know that's what you were choosing. You were saying yes to someone and saying no to a whole load of other stuff, weren't you? That's the choice. you made. When I got baptized... There were 200 people there. On this side was 100 of my old friends. And on this side was 100 people from the church. And when I got baptized, I said, I am leaving this way of life. I'm sorry, guys. I love you guys, but I can't live like this anymore. And I'm choosing to join this. And all these guys over here are like jeering at these guys. You're joining those guys, that bunch of dweebs. Uh, but I think there is, there is a, a counting of the cost that you made, whether you know it or not, you made that choice when you chose to follow Jesus. And the call here is, who will continue to follow Jesus? Who will go? Who will say, here I am, send me? Isaiah gets sent and spends six decades, Isaiah spends six decades ministering under evil kings and no one's listening to him. And at the end, under King Manasseh, he gets sawn in half because he's a prophet of the Lord. He suffers his whole life, but God called him. And actually, the story of Jesus Christ is very similar to that. So you can imagine in heaven, God looking at us, looking at our broken world, looking at Brighton, looking at humans, and saying, man, those guys really, really need saving. They're in different kinds of prisons. There's different kinds of brokenness. Who's going to go? Who shall I send? And Jesus says, Father, send me. And you think, he's a nutter. He should have stayed in comfortable heaven. Yeah, it's a terrible strategy. Jesus said, I'm sending you like a lamb among wolves. That's a terrible strategy. And so you can imagine the father saying to the son, well, you know that when you go, then they're going to reject you. They're going to mock you. In the end, they're going to kill you. And he's like, yeah, I know, but I'm going to do it because that's how I'm going to save people through my sacrificial suffering and death. And in a moment, when we come to the Lord's Supper, bread and wine, that's what we're remembering, isn't it? That the wine is because Jesus bled so much. 
And the bread is because his body was broken for us. And so Jesus, our Lord, this is the example that he set. And then we're told, imitate that kind of faith and patience. Follow Jesus. What you see in him, what you see in Adoniram Judson, what you see in Isaiah, that's the example for us. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you'd known that when you came to faith, you might not have said, yeah, hang on, I'm not sure. But that's the call to us. And so the question is, okay, then who will choose to step into paying that kind of price, choose to go to these kind of places? We've got teams moving in the next few years to all kind of places that I can't mention because this is going to go online. But, you know, we are able in our kind of family of churches to train people, to put people together in teams, to send people to places with a commitment to go, we're going to spend years, we're going to learn the language, we're going to try and understand people, we're going to serve people, we're going to preach the gospel to people. That's what we're doing, that's what we're believing for. And the question is, who wants into that kind of adventure? It's amazing, it's glorious, it's difficult. There's great fruit. Amen?